This morning we'll be looking at two verses, verses 9 and 10. You don't have to be living in this world for long before you know that something is drastically wrong. No one has to teach newborn babies to cry. They have plenty of cause. We have just come out of the bloodiest, most barbarous, violent century in human history. When you total the deaths from Auschwitz, from the killing fields of Cambodia, to what's taking place right now, Brother against brother, nation against nation, rising up, fighting with millions in the death toll. Consequently, the issue of peace and world peace is on many people's minds. There are many suggestions for how to approach this. Some, like John Lennon, wrote the song, Can't We Give Peace a Chance? As if the problem were simply that the idea had never occurred to anybody. Can't we just give it a shot? Slightly naive, but a good sentiment nonetheless. There's peace summits, the peace treaties, there's the coexist bumper stickers. We know something is wrong. The culture knows something is wrong. You turn on the news, something is wrong. I mean, yearn for peace. Or do we? You read the Bible and we realize the problem goes far, far deeper than finding the right policy or just giving peace a chance. You don't get very far into the book of Genesis before you have fratricide, brother killing brother. You keep reading, and there's nations warring with nations. It has been, it will be. And in this passage this morning, we're going to see how true and lasting peace can ever come to this world. Not that we should not strive for it now. The Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers. We'll never achieve it. No, No human policy, no plan, no human leader will give us a true and lasting peace. But we see here in Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 10, the coming of the king of peace, who brings in universal and worldwide peace. This is a triumphant, majestic passage of prophecy. So let's read Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, and see God's plan for peace, God's king of peace, and his rule of peace. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from a frame and the war horse from Jerusalem. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Here, in two short verses, we see the announcement of the coming king of peace, his kingdom of peace. We're going to look at it one verse at a time. First, verse 9, the coming king of peace. Now, if you were here last week, you know that the first eight verses of Zechariah 9, written to a post-exilic community predicts the destruction coming in Alexander the Great's conquest as he moved southward along the Mediterranean Sea down into Egypt and back up, how he would wipe out the Philistines, how he would wipe out Tyre, the city that Nebuchadnezzar in 13 years could not sack seven months for Alexander the Great. 
and then heading back up north to deal with the rest of the Assyrians. And yet, God predicts the destruction of those cities and yet the protection of Jerusalem. And it befuddles historians why Alexander left Jerusalem alone. It shouldn't befuddle us because God takes credit for it. And so the first eight verses of this chapter predict a human king, the mightiest king of his day who would come, and he did come. And yet these two verses predict so much of a greater king and so different of a king. The king described in verse 9 could not be more different than Alexander. Now remember as well that at this time there was no king in Israel. The closest they had was Zerubbabel, who was a governor, and it's likely that he had already faded from the scene at this point. We don't know exactly when Zechariah wrote this final section of the book, but we suspect is much later in his life. The temple has been rebuilt. The walls have been rebuilt. And now... In this final section, these burdens of the word of the Lord, God is going to give us an overview of where human history is going. So the king of peace, the king of peace. We'll look at his reception, his character, and his entrance. Now here is the only command in this passage, the only instruction to the reader is these opening words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is the the application for the reader. To look, to behold, and to rejoice. The, the issue is, will you see, will you understand who this king is, and will you respond appropriately? Now, I think sometimes we can misunderstand the Bible when it calls us to rejoice, and it calls us to shout and to sing. It can sound like a burden. Well, what if I don't feel like shouting and singing? The command is rather that this would come up authentically. Um, when, I'm, when I'm at a Super Bowl party... I don't see the guys coordinate when they get to the edge of their seat, right? It just happens. It just comes up, right? And you're watching something, and it's gripping, and you're excited. And what comes out of your mouth? Praise, rejoicing. Sometimes people jump. They do it spontaneously. It's not work. Now, God does not want the praise that is forced. Yay! He wants people whose hearts respond to him just like... You know, a sports enthusiast responds to their favorite game, to a masterful play. And here, he's calling for rejoicing that is authentic. It also implies that if Israel would see and truly understand their king, the natural response would be shouting and whooping and singing. It implies that. We're going to see this is a king worth getting excited about. This is a king worth shouting about. This is a king worth singing about. So different from Alexander. The reception, exuberant joy. That's the blank. His reception, exuberant joy. They're told to behold, to look. We'll, and we'll get to that a little bit later when we talk about how this is fulfilled. But that's the only application. Be looking, see rightly, behold, rejoice. And then the king enters. Behold, your king is coming to you. Notice he's their king. He's not a king. This is a specific king. This is your king, he says to Israel. Your Davidic king. That's who a king of Israel must be, according to the covenant God made with David. He must be a descendant of David to be their king, and he comes. And next we see his character. Now, 
Today, like I said, many people have many ideas of what it's going to take to get world peace. We need a wise leader. We need a charismatic leader. We, we need policy. We, there's all sorts. Of, we need bumper stickers, right? We need YouTube videos. I'm not saying those are bad things, but they will not succeed ultimately. I mean, good for you, good for your neighbor insofar as they make peace. Praise God. But we must not put our hope finally in that as if, if we just passed the right legislation, if we could just get the right leader elected, there'd be peace. Rather, we look for a king and a kingdom who is coming. And let's look to his character to see what God requires as a necessary element of peace. First, you'll see he is righteous. He is righteous. If this is a necessary element for peace, then it should be no wonder that peace of man fails. Amen? Peace must be grounded and rooted in justice and righteousness. The one who would bring about righteousness must himself first be righteous. Which is why the peace we make is temporary. The peace we make is small. This coming king is righteous. It speaks both of his character. He himself comports perfectly with God's law. And it speaks with his actions and his rule. His rule is righteous. His rule is just. That the two go together. This is the same reason why in the pastoral epistles, Paul spends so much time talking about the character of elders and leaders and pastors because there can't ultimately be any meaningful division between the man you are and what you do and say and teach. And we want to believe there can be, that you can be one thing and say another thing. But here, the king who brings peace, the king who is worthy of triumphant joy, is himself righteous and does righteously. And this is exactly what Scripture up to this point has predicted. There's been many messianic prophecies that Zechariah's audience would be well aware of. Listen to Isaiah 11, 1 through 4. Behold, my servant whom I uphold... My chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law, predicting this king, predicting this one who is to come. See, the Bible's got this Old Testament Bible's got this build-up, this ramp-up, this hype up for the one who is coming, and more and more prophets come along, adding to it. Zechariah is the penultimate Old Testament prophet. There's Malachi, and according to Jesus, John the Baptist is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. So this is the, the near final word on who this king is going to be. Psalm 2 has already made it clear this king will also be the son, will also be the Messiah, this Messiah, or the Christ. And here, he's righteous, just as Jeremiah predicts. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. He is righteous. Next, what do we see about his character? He is righteous, having salvation is he, which is a strange sort of Yoda way of the English ESV saying it, right? Having salvation is he. 
Um, it, it, it speaks of someone who is endowed with salvation, not that he will be saved or he will get away, but rather it's a passive. It, it's, it's endowed or clothed or bringing salvation. Here is a king who's first righteous. His character, his conduct is right in the sight of God. The way he rules is right. It's just. But let's think about it. If we had a universal monarch who was just, we would all be in trouble, wouldn't we? Amen? We don't want justice. Whenever people say, that's not fair, you don't want justice. Believe me. Justice, perfect justice, is we all go to hell now. Right? That's the penalty. And no delay. No time off for good behavior. We all go to hell now. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. And so it's Worthy of rejoicing that this king is just and righteous. But if that were it, we should be terrified because we are not just and righteous. And so the other half of this package, not only is this king righteous, but he brings salvation. He brings salvation, not for himself, but here's your blanks, brought to us and for us. Now, he doesn't say exactly how here, and living this side of the cross, living this side of the New Testament, we get a lot more clarity, but they're told to expect, and and the reason they're rejoicing, the reason they're getting out of their seats and getting excited, and let's say putting some palms on the ground, palm leaves on the ground, is because this is a king who's simultaneously just and justifier. He brings salvation. He brings salvation. Next, and and here the ESV translates it as humble, but that's really not the idea of the word. In fact, the only translation I could find that got to it properly is Young's literal translation. What, What is translated here as humble really means afflicted and oppressed. You see, some people can be humble simply because they're humble. This is more the humility, the humbleness that comes from being broken, from being crushed, from being burdened, from being, say, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is that type of humility. Humble, the blanks, means afflicted and oppressed. And again, this is a very different type of king. Alexander the Great was a fierce warrior. I don't know if he was a savior. He certainly, from what I can read, wasn't afflicted, crushed, and humble. This is is a better fitting description of of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, stricken, smitten, and afflicted for our transgressions. I mean, isn't it amazing? The king that is to come, the king who will even be called by the name the Lord our righteousness, he is righteous, he brings salvation. But here's a king who's not far and aloof, sitting on a throne, unable to sympathize. Here's a suffering king, a burdened king. I would submit a king you can relate to. You know, everyone knows of the famous line attributed to Marian Antoinette, which she never said, of let them eat cake. But the reason that is stuck in the public consciousness so much is it's the perfect picture of the disconnected leader. According to the story, the peasants were starving. They were getting ready to revolt. Her dignitaries, this, this never happened. I looked it up. This is entirely fictitious, but everyone knows it, so it's a good example. Um, and when she was told that they were revolting, she said, why? Well, they don't have any bread. She said, well, if they don't have bread, let them eat cake. She's just clueless. Total disconnect. Or like maybe some of our modern legislators who exempt themselves from their own policies. You get this feeling that there's not solidarity, that we're not all in this together. Right? 
Here's, here's, here's a king who can relate to his people. Here's a king who suffers. Here's a king who is burdened. And then he's humbled and afflicted. And then we see even further how he, how he does not raise himself above his countrymen. His entrance is on a donkey. This is another big contrast. Kings, triumphant kings for procession bring out the pomp. They bring out the ceremony. They bring out the gold carriages. They bring out the war horses. They put their lieutenants in front of them with all of their armor shiny. They seek glory. And yet this king comes, according to the verse, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a foal, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, there is precedent for kings riding on donkeys. Prior to Solomon, it's Solomon who, through his intermarriages and negotiations and tradings with other countries, made war horses plentiful. But prior to Solomon, it, it appears as though this donkey, this foal, colt, foal of a donkey, um, was, was regularly ridden by the prophets, by the judges. So, it, in one sense, it is a royal animal, a fitting for royalty, but it had long passed out of use. Once, once decorated, powerful war horses were plentiful, well, the king surely had to have one. He had to have the best one, the biggest one. And so what this emphasizes is two things. One, what we've said previously, his humility. But, and this is fitting with him being a king of peace, he's not showing up astride a beast ready for war. He's come not to make war, but peace. He's come not to make war, Peace comes humbly and he comes peaceably. You know, one of the things uh, Alexander would do, and I, I bring up Alexander because we've just talked about him last week, and, and you know, he'd, you'd muster, you'd, you'd put on a show because you want your opponents to, to surrender. So you want to look as big and as fierce as you can. You sort of, you know, like those animals that get up and they make their hair stand on the back so they look more frightening. That's what you're supposed to do. You're not going to get anyone to surrender. You're not going to get anyone to capitulate. You show up humbly on a donkey. You see, that's not what this king is coming to do. It, it, this is, could not be a more striking day. I want you to think of our leaders, the world leaders through history. And here, here are the essential ingredients for a good king, for the perfect king. He must himself do righteousness if he's ever going to rule righteously. That righteousness needs to be tempered, needs to be mixed with the salvation that he supplies. He needs to know affliction and sorrow. He needs to be a peacemaker and humble. This is all that we see in this great king. Are you starting to get why this is a king you can get excited about, a king you can shout for joy about, a king we could sing songs week after week about? Well, it gets better after we've looked at the king of peace. Now we're going to look at the kingdom of peace. And God is so identified with this Messiah that it, starts, it speaks first I, God speaking, then it shifts back to he. Now, of course, we know better. We, we, we get why that is now. But look, look at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, first, we're going to see the result of his rule, the methods of his rule. And again, there was no king at this time. We need, we need to be reminded of that there was no king at this time. 
But this king of peace, the result of his rule is going to be peace. And again, so many prophecies that we could just read. Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And I suggest to you he, he makes peace in two ways, destructively and constructively. Destructively and constructively. First, he cuts off all instruments of war. And that word for cut off that you see there twice, I will cut off the chariot from a frame and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. Same type of words used for someone put to death. If someone were to gather sticks on the Sabbath, you cut, they're cut off from the tribe, cut off from the people. This is done away with. See, strangely, the king who shows up on a donkey in peace is exercising a real rule. Somehow, this is a king with power. He's not showing up humbly because he is actually weak. He has the power to cut off, to destroy all instruments of war. And again, these are things predicted in Isaiah. Listen to Micah 2, 4, verses 2 through 3. And many nations will come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. There's another implication, by the way, here embedded in this passage. If you remember, Israel was taken into captivity sequentially. First, Shalmaneser, the Assyrian, came and gobbled up the ten northern tribes. And they're never seen or heard from again. Now, we know that stragglers, remnants, resist of all twelve of the tribes, but, but there really were only two tribes after this. So when he mentions Ephraim here, which is one and a half tribes, there's an implication of a regathered and reunified Israel. That Israel, even though it existed in Zerubbabel's day, existed primarily as, as, as Benjamin and Judah. There would be at some point in the future, again, a tribe of Ephraim, which is very good news for Israel. We're going to see more about that as we had in the chapter 10, about the regathering, the regathering of the tribes. But even here embedded is this implicit promise of a reconstituted, regathered, repopulated Israel, which we've already seen in this book. He cuts off all instruments of war. He rules despite his humility, despite his compassion, despite his inward burden-downness. Here is a ruler who does rule, and he rules effectively. He cuts off. We don't know how he cuts off. He cuts off. You get to the end of the book, we'll find out. But it's decisive. It happens. He cuts off all instruments of war. But I love this next bit. So there's some peace that is brought about through destruction. There is truth to the fact that sometimes there needs to be war for peace to exist. There will be a war, a, a cataclysmic battle that we'll see in chapter 12 and 14 of Zechariah, Battle of Armageddon. And this king will defeat the nations. This king will destroy their weapons. But that's not the only way he makes peace. I think once, once people are under his rule, once people have capitulated and surrendered, once people have chosen 
him as their king. He doesn't make peace through tyrannical means. I love this. He speaks peace. He speaks peace to the nations. Not that he will speak peaceably. He's very gentle in his approach. And it's not that he will teach peace. He's going to have classes on peace. He speaks peace. I mean, this is power. He speaks and he makes it. It happens through the power of his word. He speaks to the nations. Peace, there's peace. I love that. I love that. The power of the word of this king. He speaks peace to the nations. And it happens. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He speaks peace to the nations. How big is his rule? How big is his kingdom? It's a global kingdom. That's what's meant by that expression, from sea to sea. Some, some commentators have tried to limit this to something local. It, it can't be done. That phrase, from sea to sea, comes from Psalm 72, verse 8, speaking again of, of God's rule. He may also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And if you keep reading in Psalm 72, it's clear we're talking about all peoples, all tribes, all nations, all languages. This is a global kingdom, just as was predicted in Psalm 2. Turn to Psalm 2 with me. I love Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a, is a majestic messianic headwaters. Um, it's, it's where these different threads, there's all sorts of messianic threads tracking through the Bible. There's the suffering servant. There's the conquering king. There's the prophet like Moses. And as you study your Old Testament, some of the Jews of Jesus' day got confused about these things. If you remember when they sent the emissaries to John the Baptist, they said, are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? They didn't realize it was the same person. In Psalm 2, three of those threads are conjoined into one person. The anointed, which is the English, or the Messiah, which is Hebrew, Messiah, or Christ, which is Greek. Greek, Hebrew, and English for the same thing. Anointed, Messiah, Christ are three different languages for the same thing. The Lord's anointed is also the king, is also the son. Same person. They come together. Huge psalm. Psalm 2. Let's just read the whole thing. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Mount Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is again predicted a worldwide multinational empire, a king of kings, a king to whom other kings and princes are encouraged. <laughs> Go do fealty to him. Rejoice with trembling. 
is he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Make no mistake, despite his humble entrance, despite his, his meekness of heart, he will have all authority. He's able to cut off weapons of war. He's able to speak peace. Not make peace, speak it. This is a powerful king. He speaks peace to the nations. What is the extent of his rule? It is global. It's global. And that is the end of this passage as far as it goes. But we know more, don't we? Don't we? In fact, in just a week or two, we would celebrate Palm Sunday. And so we got to look at the fulfillment of this. And point three here is the coming of peace. We've seen the king of peace, the kingdom of peace, the coming of peace. Because what's described here in these two verses, some of it has happened and some of it is yet to come. And, and so we got to make sense of this and figure out how this applies to our lives. The coming of peace. Point A. The king has come. The king has come. Verse 9 has been fulfilled. How do we know it's been fulfilled? Turn to Matthew chapter 21. There's a typo in the bulletin. Matthew 21. The New Testament writers repeatedly tell us, quoting Zechariah, this happened when the Lord Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. Israel's king has come to her. I'm just going to read the first five verses of Matthew 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the cut and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirring up, saying, Who is this? The crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So verse 9 has happened. We don't have to guess. We can know with absolute certainty. But I want to look. Did Jesus meet these qualifications? I think he did. We go, back, go back to point one. What do we say his character was? He's righteous. This is the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. No charge was brought against him. They had to make up charges against him. He never sinned. He never did what is wrong. Yes, he was righteous. Did he do righteously? Yes. Everyone marveled at his teaching with authority. No one contradicted his, his use of the Bible. Okay, so check. Is he righteous? You bet he was. You bet he is. He brings salvation to his people. Did Jesus bring salvation to his people? You bet he did. He himself was 
is our salvation. Jesus came humbly on a donkey, not to institute a worldwide kingdom, but to die. To die for the sins of his people. Jesus died on the cross so that you and I might not have to die. Jesus suffered God's wrath so that you and I might not have to suffer God's wrath. Jesus became sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Yes, he did. Was he afflicted and oppressed? Yes, he was. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Was he humble in spirit? Or did he come in pomp? And circumstance. Well, just listen to, to Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls. Yeah, I, I think Jesus matches the character of this king. I think, I think God, speaking through Zechariah, nailed it in describing and predicting our king. Which, which brings us you know, to the question, because his own people killed him. Yes, there were hundreds or thousands who rejoiced. There were hundreds or thousands who heard the, the instruction in this passage. Because like I said, there's only one instruction to the reader. Rejoice, shout, behold, look, be attentive. And some, some of the Jews did that. We read about them on Palm Sunday. They rejoice. They get it. They see who he is. And when they see who he is, they can't help but get excited. But John's testimony in John chapter 1 is that he came to his own. His own did not receive him. Right? So yeah, there was, there was a couple hundred, maybe a thousand, a couple thousand Jews who did. But when you look at the whole nation, they rejected him. They didn't heed this warning. They, they, they either stumbled because they were looking for something different. It seems like most of them are looking for somebody who's going to do verse 10. Destroy the Romans. Jesus is the king of peace, but the peace he came to bring first and foremost is peace not with your neighbor, not peace with your brother, not peace from the other countries. Peace with God. So most people don't realize that we are born into this world at war with God. And we sang in that song, Arise, my soul, arise. My God is reconciled. And more than one person has come to me saying, what do you mean God's reconciled? Don't you realize he was your enemy? Don't you realize that he was sorely provoked by you and he was angry with great wrath at your sin? That if you fell into his hands, it would be a terrifying thing. But now he is reconciled. The peace Jesus came to give was first and foremost peace with God, which is why Paul in Romans 5 can talk about the consequence of being a Christian, the consequence of, of placing your faith in Jesus, saying, therefore, having been justified by faith, we are having peace with God. See, what, what provoked the Israelites is when Jesus started talking about their sin. Because, of course, you can't bring someone to salvation without dealing with their sin. And so in John 8... He starts talking about whoever's a sins a slave to sin. We've been slaves to nobody, you know, except the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Romans. Aside from that, nobody. We're not slaves of anybody. Certainly not slaves of sin. They try to kill him. Jesus came to bring peace 
peace he came to bring was first and foremost peace with God. And the good news, they, they missed it. Now, they're looking forward. But I would suggest to you that the exact same exhortation to the reader of Zechariah's day would apply to us. I would, I would ask you in your mind's eye to turn your attention to the Lord Jesus who came and, and, and exhort you to behold, to see rightly. And if you see him rightly, you will rejoice. You will shout. You will get excited. You will not view it a burden to sing on Sunday mornings. Because he came, and he came humbly, and the gospel offer, the gospel call goes out to all without exception, to Jew, to Greek, to male, to female, to slave, to free. Has he come and has he spoken peace? Well, listen to the language of Ephesians 2.17. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, peace to those who are near. Yes, Jesus has spoken peace. He has a word of peace for you and for me. The question is, will we see it? Will we behold it? Or we say, nah, he was a decent guy and all, but that's the question. There's only one exhortation. The exhortation is to see and respond. And if this is an issue that you have questions about, if this is an issue that you have, you'd like to know more about, please talk to me, one of the elders, and we'd love to talk more with you. Because while he tarries, while we live in the pause between verse 9 and verse 10, that, that gospel is on the table. But there's going to come a day when he ain't going to show up riding a donkey. Then, then, my friend, it will be a bit late. You see, what Zechariah saw as a single coming, we now know, just like a traveler approaching hills can see seven, eight hills lined up as one mountain, that there's, there's, a, there's a break in here. Paul says it was a mystery in Ephesians. This, this creation of the church and what God's doing with the church is a mystery. Not revealed. Mystery. Something hidden previously. And so we know there's, there's been at least 2,000 years between verse 9 and verse 10 of Zechariah 9. But praise God for that because that's 2,000 years for the gospel to go out. 2,000 years for Gentile, unclean people like you and me to be grafted in to the olive tree, to graft it into the covenants of promise. But he will come again. And when he comes again, he will not come humbly. When he comes again, he will come with pomp and with glory. Listen to the language. This is point B. The king will come. The king has come. Point A, the king will come. Second Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Listen to this. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at, among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. He's, he's not coming back on a donkey. He's coming back in glory. He's coming back in power. He's coming back to repay his enemies who have not listened to his word of peace. And he will cut them off. And if you are still his enemy, he will cut you off. Make no doubt. Lord Jesus is coming. On one hand, to repay those who refuse to obey the gospel and to be glorified and marveled at among those who have believed. The book of Revelation gives us probably the clearest picture of this. I love this. Revelation 9, turn to Revelation 19. We'll, we'll close here. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. 
I'm going to ask the worship team to come up in preparation for our final song while, we, while you guys turn there. Revelation chapter 19. The Lord Jesus came once in humility. He came once covering his glory. As a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, riding humbly on a donkey, but that's not the way he will return. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. No donkey, white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire. And upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself, and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And this is the name he is called, the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth came a sharp sword, so that he, that with it he may smite the nations." He will rule them with a rod of iron. There's a reference to Psalm 2. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Now we live in that day. We live in between these two comings. We can look back with even greater clarity to what Zechariah predicted in verse 9. We can look back to the humble king, the son of God, who didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he, he, he let go of his rights and his privileges. He became a slave, became a man. He was mistreated. He went through all the suffering that you and I go through. He, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He, he goes to the cross out of love for his father, love for us. He dies for our sin. He becomes sin. And now he offers free pardon, free forgiveness to all who will repent and believe, to all who will turn in faith to him. We live in that day, but we also live in a day where at any moment, verse 10 could show up of Zechariah 9. Paul, Paul says in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment, any moment, the Lord could return. More to the point, at any moment, you could die, and you could just sort of boom, be face-to-face with the living God. So there is this great king to get excited about, and there is this great threat of wrath and fire for those who do not receive Jesus. I do believe that most of us here have come to know the Lord by faith, and so most of us here are those who are rejoicing and celebrating, and there's no way we could end this service without singing. In fact, I thought, what better fitting song could we sing than Behold Our God? So I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm going to sing our final song. If you have any questions, please talk to me. Please talk to one of the pastors. But hallelujah, our King has come. Hallelujah, our King is coming. Lord God, we are so thankful. We are so thankful that your word can be trusted. We are so thankful that you have sent us your Son. Our King has come to the letter. And he came humbly. He came hiding his glory. He came in suffering and affliction. And a remnant saw and a remnant believed and a remnant rejoiced. The sad tragedy is so many mistook him for who he was. So many loved their sin more than they loved him. And they killed him for it. And now in your infinite wisdom... 
that stumbling of Israel has allowed the gospel to go forward to us. And so, in some senses, their stumbling meant riches for the world. We look forward to when he returns, and their full inclusion will just mean even greater blessings. And we know that your son is, is, is going to return at a pointed hour. Just help us to be ready for that hour. Help us to speak the words of life to our neighbors so that they would become ready for that hour. And in the meantime, Lord, while we do not see face to face but dimly through a glass, give us eyes of faith so that we might see and rejoice, not under compulsion, not for any other reason than we see some glimmer of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. Lord, please make it so. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.